Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Guyen, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. In today's episode, we'll sort through all the messy details of last week's protests, which elicited bloodshed, police overreactions, hateful messages, and some terrible legal takes. And we'll ask whether the region of Waterloo has any business giving bylaw officers the power to ticket people for using words they don't like. Seriously, Waterloo, what the heck? We'll share our bad legal takes of the week, our favorite part of this podcast, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that did not quite land. But first, let's look at a story that you might have missed. Joanna, tell us about Dr. Kalvinder Kaur, this doctor who got famous on Twitter during the pandemic for questioning the efficacy of, of vaccines and lockdowns. Uh, is her fight with the College of Physicians and Surgeons over? So yes and no. So for those of you who aren't aware of Dr. Carr, Dr. Kalvinder Carr is a physician. She has a practice in Brampton and Milton, Ontario. Uh, she has a medical background in virology uh, and her current practice is in allergy, asthma, clinical immunology. Um, and you might have noticed during the pandemic, one of these sort of uh, prominent COVID doctors that popped up on Twitter, uh, Dr. Carr was a very strident critic of Ontario's public health measures. Uh, and she tweeted, for example, and I quote, there is absolutely no medical or scientific reason for this prolonged, harmful and illogical lockdown. Uh, and she also tweeted, if you have not figured out yet that we don't need a vaccine, you are not paying attention. And this is some of the tamer tweets. There was other rhetoric that was very questionable. Um, and so, of course, regulatory body was watching and a few complaints by members of the public, not patients, but members of the public were lodged against her. And in 2021, April 2021, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, which is, of course, the body which is legally charged with licensing and disciplinary authority over the medical profession in the province, uh, issued a statement which had threatened disciplinary measures against any doctors who communicated anti-vaccine, anti-mask, anti-social distancing, anti-lockdown statements, um, or promoting unsupported, and I'm quoting this, unproven treatments for COVID-19, like, for example, ivermectin. And uh, so this is the premise under which Dr. Carr was charged, and ultimately she was found to be in violation of her college's uh, policy, um, but I think it's important just to go back and kind of remember how aggressive and crazy this time was. Um, there were a lot of physicians, not just Dr. Carr, who strongly disagreed with these statements on quote unquote misinformation. There was a petition um, called the Declaration of Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth, which circulated, um, which is signed by more than 700 Ontario doctors, because um, they noticed that, for example, this policy, which forbid basically any criticism would not allow them to publicly agree with something like the Great Barrington Declaration, which was, of course, a declaration signed by Dr. J. Bhattacharya of Stanford, other doctors from Oxford, Johns Hopkins, um, that advocated for, I think they called it focus protection. So basically, members of society that were at high risk um, to engage in social distancing and lockdown measures and basically for the general population to circulate. Um, whatever you think about that, I think it is it does raise some logistical issues, right? Because so many people are high risk and non-high risk people interact with high risk people. The point is that it was a serious and credible argument being made in the medical profession, and it would seemingly be a massive restriction on free expression if no physicians in Ontario were permitted uh, to, uh, to engage or communicate about these arguments. So getting back to why where this is a news headline in September 2023, um, so Dr. Carr was disciplined for her tweets in 2021. But there was a few other investigations against her. So there was a high level investigation that was later, later launched where the college claimed that the quote unquote totality 
of Twitter commentary would have, and I quote again, would have had the effect of undermining public confidence in measures taken to combat COVID-19. And obviously, Dr. Carr and her counsel took issue with the case against her to meet being all of her Twitter commentary. Like that's kind of psychotic to me as a former criminal defense lawyer, like you have to know the case to meet. And if the case to meet is every single thing you posted on Twitter for the last uh, three years, um, that is not a workable standard. Um, in any event, the news uh, as of last week, I believe, is that the college abandoned that hearing against Dr. Carr and will not be proceeding. Um, however, it should be noted that uh, Dr. Carr is proceeding with the judicial review, so she's challenging the earlier decision against her. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. That will be heard by divisional court in 2024. Uh, obviously, we've, we've spoken recent, in recent weeks about the Jordan Peterson College of Physician appeal, uh, which didn't go very well. Um, the courts have shown extraordinary deference to regulatory bodies. Um, so I, I wouldn't hold my breath, but so in point of fact, Josh, her fight with the college is not over. Um, but this particular insane case, which took her to task for all of her, all of the tweets, um, seems to be over, which is a win. Um, and these colleges have really run roughshod over rights. I have to say in the last few years, uh, particularly in the, in the context of COVID-19, I have some personal experience with this. My mother is a naturopath. Um, and so, you know, I was raised, I was home birth and I was raised with homeopathic remedies and was getting acupuncture needles poked into me when I was like six years old and was just always raised with the understanding of alternative paradigms of looking at healing and medicine. Um, and I was fairly shocked to learn when my mother told me that her college, her regulatory college, took basically as hard line a view about any communications about vaccines or lockdowns. Um, so you were not permitted to make any public comment as a naturopath about, about vaccination. Turns out my mother is quite mainstream. She actually advised most of her patients that given the relative risks of vaccination versus getting COVID, my mother is fully vaccinated and I believe boosted. Um, but I found it just kind of jarring that a profession that is particularly there to be a sort of counterpoint to dominant medical approaches um, would be as intolerant of other viewpoints as the College of Physicians. Uh, Josh, I know that you also have some personal experience with doctors that have been clamped down on during the pandemic. Um, do you want to share a bit about that? Sure. Well, I wouldn't call it necessarily personal experience, but um, there was a doctor in Northern Ontario that uh, my mom was friends with, and and he lost his license for um, some of the things that he said online, and also for um, prescribing drugs that the the college didn't uh, approve of for COVID nineteen. And um, my mom, it's you brought up your mom, so I'm going to talk about mine. She was a nurse and she's retired now. Um, but when this, when COVID happened, she was pretty skeptical about the vaccine and that surprised me at first. But then she told me, look, I had to get vaccines um, every year for the flu. And if you look closely at the research, um, the, the flu vaccine many years doesn't really work very well. And, you know, look at my arm here. I'm going to show you the part of my arm where I was like, permanently injured by one of these flu vaccines. And there was another year where um, she was given the wrong dose of flu vaccine. And so she was pretty skeptical about the vaccine too. And, you know, whatever you think of the vaccine, like it's a decision you have to make on your own in consultation with your doctor and the best available evidence. But the idea that, you know, nurses, doctors, naturopaths, that they can't talk about this and present a different point of view, that's where things get really scary to me. So um, I'm glad to see that this is sort of over for now with Dr. Core. And I wanted to make another point. So one of the things that really grabbed me about this um, College of Physicians and Surgeons claim is that it was somehow dangerous of her to suggest that there was no benefits to the lockdown. And to me, um, that was a pretty open question for most of the pandemic. But I think the jury's in and we can see kind of from Sweden's experience that Dr. Carr was probably right all along. Um, you know, most almost every country did the same thing, which is harsh lockdowns like 
uh, Canada did. But Sweden didn't do that. They took a more voluntary approach and it turned out really well for them. They, they had a similar number of COVID deaths per million people as the rest of Europe. And uh, they had a much lower per capita number of COVID deaths than the UK or the US. And it's true that every country is different, but you can also look at overall excess deaths. And they had the lowest in Europe over, over the three years of COVID. And I think that's probably because you know, uh, lockdowns cause deaths of despair. They cause people to like drink too much, take too many drugs to commit suicide. And, you know, people sort of scoff at that, but we've long known that when there's an economic recession, people tend to be more likely to take their own lives, uh, which is really, really sad. And Sweden's economy is one of the few that actually grew during the pandemic because they didn't have harsh lockdowns. And one more thing on that, Sweden, didn't take kids out of school for months and months on end like the rest of the world did and their kids are not falling behind and speaking of personal experience i was working with uh, one of my nieces on her reading the other day and she's doing fine but i looked at what her class is doing in grade two here in toronto and they're doing essentially kindergarten level reading in grade two so you know our kids here in ontario have fallen way behind so it's just another data point on how lockdowns probably were were wrong and you know people like dr carr who were ringing the alarm um had every business saying that so i don't know christine uh what do you think do you have any reaction to this or do you want to move on to your news yeah, headline i'll give a, i'll give a really quick comment which is is about the role of these regulators the physician regulators so i spoke to someone recently a physician uh, he asked me to keep his story anonymous. This this anecdote is actually in our book, Pandemic Panic, which is available for order online on Amazon right now. So what he told me was he also faced this suppression of his speech from his regulator following some tweets that he put out. And his tweets, I, I can't say what they were because it will reveal who, who he is, but basically they resent related to consent and autonomy for bodily autonomy and consent to medical treatment as it related to vaccines, because it's supposed to be, you know, as you said, it's supposed to be a choice that you make yourself informed by your physician. And he talked about how uncomfortable he was with this situation where people kind of had that autonomy taken away from them, where there were questions about whether or not they were actually were consenting fully voluntarily to a medical intervention uh, of this COVID vaccine. So he tweeted, uh, look, I've read the tweets are really kind of milk toast, generic stuff that about any other in any other setting would not attract any attention at all. He was just talking about how uncomfortable he felt. Um, uh, but his tweets attracted the attention of, you know, some complainers in the public, and they reported his tweets to the College of Physicians. And, you know, he, the college investigated because of these public complaints by pe just not patients of his, um, they, in, in, they, they investigated and they gave him what is called advice and the advice related to how some members of the public could be offended by his statements. Now, advice is not the same thing as disciplinary action, which is what this, uh, Dr. Carr, uh, Kerr had, had faced. But advice must be disclosed by the physician when he or she is applying for hospital privileges. And based on the Jordan Peterson case, we know that the existence of previous advice from a regulator can be used against that professional when weighing the reasonableness of subsequent administrative action like disciplinary action. So even though the entire notion of advice is that you can take it or leave it, Apparently, the divisional court, uh, their view is that if you fail to take it, it weighs against that professional. So this doctor who I talked to, he disclosed that he's taking the rare step of seeking an administrative appeal of the advice. But more broadly, he was concerned that public complaints against physicians created a chilling effect during the pandemic and that that effect can continue into the post-pandemic era. So that's 
just a, a little add on to the story of Dr. Uh, Carr. Did you want me to do my headline now, Josh, or do you want to do yours? Okay. Yeah, you go uh, first. Okay. I'll, I want to talk about this proposed bylaw in Waterloo. It, you know, I feel like I'm always talking about bylaws, but honestly, it's because city council is, it's something people don't think a lot about, but as I've said many times, it's actually the most likely to be your closest interaction with the government and it can impact our lives more directly than any other level of government. And that's why I'm always pounding on that particular um, municipal drum. So there's this new bylaw being proposed in Waterloo. Uh, city council is going to be voting on it and it's about harassment. Uh, it would categorize making people um, who feel harassed on gender identity or other grounds as a prohibited activity uh, on, and it applies to any regional properties. And this all comes kind of in the wake of these um, na nationwide million child march protests. So what happened was this report was submitted to Waterloo's Community and Health Services Committee, and it would address harassment based on race, religion, gender identity, or sexual orientation if it occurs on property owned by the region, like community centers, swimming pools, or other facilities. And if approved, this bylaw would add communicating, causing, or permitting communication with any person in a way that causes the person reasonably in all circumstances to feel harassed as a prohibited activity. And this includes written, verbal, visual, and other forms of communication. And the report also defines being harassed as feeling tormented, troubled, worried, plagued, or badgered. And as I said, it only applies to Waterloo-owned property. Now, this bylaw is pretty bad, but it's actually not as bad as the Calgary version of the bylaw, the street harassment bylaw, which has similar language, but it actually applies everywhere in Calgary. So it, it applies to sidewalks, to restaurants, and I just, I really hate these bylaws. The Supreme Court has held that there is no right not to be offended. That is from a Supreme Court case called Ward. And the, basically, I just don't think the government should be in, in the business of enacting laws that punish you for offending someone. And just to give an example of how it has played out in Calgary, there was this argument at a public pool over trans people being allowed to use the change rooms of the sex they identify with. And people were, some people were protesting about it. Then there were counter protesters who were protesting the protests and they all offended each other. And they all ended up with street <laughs> harassment fines. Like maybe the government just shouldn't be involved in this, that people yelling at each other and offending each other is just none of our business. Like. It just isn't the role of government to say, like, you be nice to each other. That is your mother's job that, to tell you how to how to speak and be nice to your your neighbors. That is not the role of the busybodies at, at municipal city council. So, I, I mean, I would love to do a challenge of one of these bylaws. Right now in Calgary, we are focused on that protest ban bylaw, which I've talked about in previous podcasts. But you know, the street harassment bylaw is something I'd consider challenging as well. Joanna, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you said it. Obviously, we are involved and there was some press this week, which I think we'll get into because some of the press was sort of misleading. My bad our, legal take this week. Yeah, our Calgary City Council protest man. Um, we also had, I was trying to remember, what was the name of that town in Nova Scotia that in 2020? Yarmouth. Yarmouth, how could I have forgotten? So yeah, this was another town that took an insane unconstitutional step. They banned all election signs. And the pretext was that this was like a green environmental initiative. But we pointed out that, you know, you could have a wooden sign or a recycled sign. And, you know, quite simply, they couldn't do it. And I remember there was this like kind of old timey lawyer who was on the city council or on their legal committee that sent us this long letter about why actually it was totally constitutional and how like the town could elect to do anything that it saw with within <laughs> its discretion. And we were just like, dude, like you realize that the municipal bylaw 
under which you're operating is superseded by the charter and particularly the right to free expression. Um, so I, I think that honestly, if you look at the actual governments, as you say, that actually affect your day-to-day -day rights and that are actually um, impinging on real things like, you know, can you walk down the street? Can you, can you communicate? Look at city council governments and um, it has become a proud specialty of the CCF that we sue these bastards, if I may say, <laughs> uh, these these petty tyrants. Uh, what do you think, Josh? Uh, yeah, I think this bylaw is crazy. It's 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 just you know, first of all, uh, when did people stop being able to you know act like adults? Like this is what I've been thinking watching this coverage of last week's um, gender ideology protests like you know kids when i was a kid and i'm this can make me sound old but they we used to say you know sticks and stones can break your bones but words can never hurt you you know if somebody calls you a mean word the response to that is to ignore it and move on and now we have a a bylaw that says if you call someone a word and they feel troubled by the word or they feel worried you know you can go to some bylaw officer and get somebody ticketed for that and that's it just seems like obviously unconstitutional to me um the example that i saw in this news article is that you know if you if you called someone a terrorist they could you could now get a ticket so like what can you say if you can't you Sometimes know call, I call some... my son a terrorist <laughs> better watch out christine better not say that about at some public pool and you better water. not be listening to this he's gonna get some ideas and by the way like if if somebody was at like a public pool like just to use that example in waterloo and somebody called a person in a hijab a terrorist how do you think people would react people would 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 defend that person right they would they would correct that behavior by using their own words which is what we tell four-year-olds to do so you know, this is all really, really stupid. And also, I don't understand how they can call this a, a harassment bylaw because harassment is normally like a course of conduct um, that's, you know, vexatious. Like it's a pretty high standard and you have to kind of do it over and over again in most Like you cases. mean in the employment so, law context. In the employment law yeah. context, yeah. yeah. So just calling it harassment is the wrong, the wrong word. Like this is just basically, you can't say words we don't like bylaw. So... <laughs> Um, I hope that if we don't end up challenging it, that somebody else does, because this just goes way too far. Um, I don't know if you two have any more to say on this or if we should just uh, throw it a break. And when we come back, I could tell you about my headline. Let's take a break. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Last week, there were huge protests and counter protests across Canada related to so-called gender ideology in schools. And the main event was on September 20th, and it was called the One Million March for Children, organized by parents who are opposed to things like school board policies that say kids can socially transition their genders without their parents' knowledge or consent. Even in kindergarten, apparently, I saw one school board policy this week that made very clear this applies to kindergarten students. And that's obviously an, uh, a pretty reasonable thing, I think, to be concerned about. But of course, there were also people marching and showing up to these rallies who were bigots and who say that, you know, teachers are all trying to groom kids into being gay or transgender. And I don't think that's really a thing or it's certainly not a, a common thing. But uh, anyway, uh, news that this protest was going to happen prompted this big response from organized labor and pretty much every left-leaning institution and it led to all these over-the-top public statements before it even happened so it just sort of got bigger and bigger for example PSAC, which is the federal employees union put out a message to all its members saying you know these groups claim to be concerned about parents rights but they're actually about anti-2-s-l-g-b-t-q-i-a plus minus divided by sign hate rallies and I've been trying to figure out what actually happened since I obviously didn't go to these in person. And I didn't see a lot of hate on display, at least not from the anti-gender ideology people, 
especially considering that there were, you know, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who showed up. Um, the one big exception was in Calgary, where this really nasty guy grabbed a microphone and started saying, you know, gays are psychopaths and gays are disgusting. And there was a kid um, possibly with him, maybe his own kid, I'm not sure, who had a sign that said, kick the gays out of the country, which That's for awful. the record, I am not in favor of that. Like, you know, obviously this guy is truly hateful and and yeah, not a, not a good person, but perhaps not representative of the whole protest movement. So on the other hand, the counter protesters, if you watch the videos, they acquitted themselves really shabbily, in my opinion. And I think that's partly because the unions that organized this have been distributing this thing called the Guide for Pride Defenders. And this is produced by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. I'm not sure, Christine and Joanna, if you've heard of this Guide for Pride Defenders. No. Has this come across your radar? No. I mean, I'm, I am familiar with Canada Anti-Hate Network. But... Okay, well, for I'm going to tell you a little bit about it for, for those of us. For those listeners who don't know, so first of all, I want to give a shout out to Kara Massad, who's a Toronto lawyer and investigative journalist who reported on this guide and how unions have been pushing this guide to their members. So first of all, Canadian Anti-Hate Network is, it's a charity. They've previously received taxpayer funding from the federal government to, you know, do their work, which is, quote, anti-fascist and anti-racist work uh, tirelessly countering, monitoring, and exposing hate movements. And they they have really aggressive tactics at protests, which are spelled out in this guide to pride defenders. And I saw this on display in videos from this protest outside of a North York, so a Toronto school um, by a group called Save Canada. And uh, Kara Massad, the journalist, and lawyer that I was talking about, she attended this and recorded some videos. And um, I'm going to play you some of her video so you can get a sense of the scene because what went down was crazy. So basically, you can you can see there's a bunch of um, anti-gender ideology protests, including this Josh Alexander guy from the group Save Canada. He's kind of famous for being kicked out of school for opposing um, all gender restrooms and things like that. Anyway, so these Antifa people, um, or Antifa as Sad likes to call them, they showed up with giant rainbow flags and these cupy umbrellas, and they're, some of them are in ski masks and wearing sunglasses and covering themselves and hiding their identities. And they're aggressively shouting, you know, whose streets are streets. And they're trying to like physically push back the gender protesters using these flags and umbrellas. And at, at one point, Nick Alexander, who's like the older brother of this Josh kid, he's got blood streaming down his face and then he gets arrested. I'm not really sure why I can't really tell from the video. And you see the protesters walking around blasting these like extremely obnoxious, hearing damaging noisemakers right directly in the ear of the gender protesters. And so anyway, it, it turns out these these over the top tactics come from this Pride Defenders Guide. It says, you know, you should cover your face. You should use large banners and um, flags to, quote, claim space, by which they seem to mean like physically pushing back the other protesters. And they say you should, you know, use loud music and whistles to disrupt the verbal harassment. And to be clear, I don't think Khan's like recommending anything illegal, but it really was a nasty tactic to sort of like physically intimidate and drown out all the people that you disagree with who are exercising their right to to free expression. Um, basically, what's happening here is this Canadian anti-hate network is endorsing a heckler's veto. And that's really sad because we need people to behave like adults at protests. And I really hope that the union members and taxpayers who are aware of, who find out about this, um, oppose their money supporting these kinds of tactics. Christine, I know that was a lot of info, but um, what's your reaction? The only thing I'd say is that I, I actually, you know, 
we can say we don't like the heckler's veto, you know, as a civil society position, but it's obviously constitutionally protected to behave that way. Like you, you have a, a right to drown out other protesters. That is, that is a, that is a form of expression as well. It's also protected. Now the right to freedom of assembly, it's, contingent on it being peaceful assembly. So of course you cannot engage in violence during a protest. So either side of these protests, if they're engaging in violence, that needs to be addressed by police and seems like they had varying levels of success. Uh, but that's, that's my only small addition, just that we need to emphasize that even if we don't think that that is particularly effective expression to drown out the people you disagree with, it's a tactic you can use. Joanna, anything to add on that? Yeah, I guess, like you said about Waterloo, you have a right to be obnoxious. And I think it's important that you underscore that the right goes both ways. So I see how this incident last week, which we were all in Texas, and we were kind of trying to follow um, online what was going on, but it seems to have like galvanized people in a really weird way. And I was just looking uh, yesterday at my Twitter mentions, which or X mentions, which I I don't recommend, but um, I got a, a a response from somebody had posted "Pandemic Panic" available for pre-order, and we got a response um, from somebody with the handle at Car Reliance BC, whose uh, username is enough with all the hate speech and fascism, who called this uh, a nice pile of propaganda trash. But then, and I want to emphasize this part. In all caps, we don't have free speech in Canada for a reason. And then I went and saw Mr. Car Reliance or, or Ms. or uh, Zer. Uh, Car Reliance BC is their bio. And it says, if you are part of a million march of support, you are a fascist. Thanks for asking. So, but, but just to be clear, like when we say free speech... We mean both, you know, the anti-fo people, as well as the Muslim parents, which the other thing that you didn't mention, Joss, because you had so much to mention, was that the Muslim um, Association of Canada has written a letter um, expressing how displeased they are that the Trudeau government um, seems to be characterizing this march as hateful and uh and you know, hateful against the LGBTQ community, but but yeah, like Antifo has a right to be obnoxious. The Muslim community has a right to be obnoxious. Um, somebody has a right to stand up and say even awful things about gay people. Although obviously, you know, like we condemn it, but like this is what a free society and looks subject like. to laws on hate speech. That's right. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that stood out to me about <laughs> this protest was the photos of you know. Um, the it looked like Mennonite young Mennonite girls chatting with young girls in hijabs and like this alliance between people who you might not think are aligned the, these mean, are it's people a, at the protests yeah it's a pluralistic society and it's messy and ugly and it's it's similar to the freedom convoy in that if you wanted to see um racist people if you you know I'm sure there was a few very dodgy people there if you wanted to see the love fest um, and the bouncy castles that was there like uh, it's a messy split society and to some extent that's good because the point is that we should engage with each other and have to deal with each other even if we find one another obnoxious so okay I'm going to turn now to my freedom update and it's about a case that's being heard next week so I will be heading to British Columbia next week for the appeal of our legal challenge to to that province's vaccine password system. <laughs> you remember what those are? Uh, the hearing is taking place over three days in Vancouver at the Court of Appeal. And the case was brought by us as a public interest litigant and by three individuals who couldn't be vaccinated for medical reasons, a teenager who got heart inflammation called pericarditis after her first dose of the COVID vaccine, that's an adverse reaction. The second, individual was a pregnant woman in her 30s who developed an adverse reaction to the vaccine called brachial neuritis, which left her arm paralyzed. Uh, and the third was a woman with a number of complex and overlapping disabilities, including spina bifida. And she has a history of poor surgical outcomes from her more than 15 surgeries and a history of multiple adverse drug reactions. And 
she was uncomfortable because of her very complex history getting a COVID vaccine due to all of her drug reactions that she's had. But she uses a pool uh, for her mobility because she's mobility impaired as a result of that spina bifida. And because she wasn't vaccinated, she wasn't able to use the pool. And that meant that she needed more nerve blocking injections and she gained weight and lost even more mobility. So all three of these women were denied access to public spaces because of not being vaccinated. But the court, the lower court dismissed our case as premature. They found that all three of these women had not exhausted their opportunity to apply for medical exemptions. Now, this was super frustrating for us because if you actually read the orders that created the vaccine passports, and if you take those orders at face value and you believe what they say, there really was no ability for these women to apply for blanket exemptions. Now, we argued that the orders, these orders were creating the, the vaccine passports, had a closed list for medical exemptions. And two of the petitioners, the woman with the brachial neuritis and the woman with spina bifida, they weren't even eligible to apply. Now, the teenage girl who had uh, pericarditis, she could have applied for what is called an activity by activity exemption, which meant she could send a letter to public health every time she wanted to do some basic socializing in a public space. And in her application for that activity by activity exemption, she needed to explain the importance uh, of why she couldn't do that activity virtually. Basically, she needed permission from her mom to go out and then she needed permission from the government every time she wanted to go out. So we obviously thought this was outrageous. We brought the challenge, but the government argued it was premature and the court agreed. The government basically evaded constitutional review by filing evidence that they, even though this was this closed list system that we showed the court, the government said, oh, well, we're accepting medical exemption applications beyond that closed list, um, even though the mandatory forms didn't permit that. And they were granting generalized exemptions instead of those activity by activity exemptions, despite the fact that the order said it only would give activity by activity exemptions. And all of this information about how they weren't abiding by their own rules, we only came to learn that four months later when we forced the issue by suing the government and the government filed evidence. So they had no way of knowing that there was this secret process that the government was operating. Now, so essentially what the government did in BC was they defended an unconstitutional order by saying that they secretly didn't actually follow their own orders. And then they faulted these three women, one of whom is a teenager, for not knowing that. So the three women in the case, I think they were just in an impossible situation. It's obvious that the regime created by the government had mandatory forms, that it didn't have an open category. And that we also think that doctors, as we've talked about, had were operating under a big chilling effect. Um, doctors were dissuaded by their own regulator from writing letters in support of exemptions on the basis of public health's own statements that only the listed conditions would qualify for an exemption. So the, the, these patients couldn't find physicians who would support writing a letter for an exemption because the doctors were frankly scared of facing discipline even though those same doctors would write letters for employment exemptions, they were not willing to write exemptions that would go to the government. So as a result of the finding that the case was premature, the judge at the BC Supreme Court didn't actually address any of the charter arguments, which is unfortunate. Uh, we had argued that there were charter breaches, that the vaccine passport violated the right to equality and the right to security of person. So we're going to be appealing all of this next week. The first day of the appeal is actually going to, though, be dedicated to mootness, uh, which means that there's no longer a live issue before the courts, so the courts don't need to decide it because the government says that the vaccine passports are not in force anymore. Um, they, by the way, argued that at the lower court hearing and lost. So I don't know why it wasn't, if it was moot now, why it wasn't moot then. I don't, I think it's not moot. And by the way, the government has not said that these 
vaccine passports are done for sure. They will not commit to never bringing them back. And it has always been their position that they could come back if the virus surges again. And keep in mind, we're now entering the fall where people are more likely to get sick. We're more likely to see various respiratory viruses surge in the winter. Uh, and also keep in mind that the vaccine mandates remain in place, a, a different mandate, but still they remain in place for uh, medical workers. So I don't think that this case is moot, but as we have learned during the pandemic with all these legal challenges we've brought, claiming mootness does appear to be a favorite strategy of the government in order to uh, evade review. Uh, Josh, any any reaction to this case? We need to get an actual answer on the merits here, but a lot of courts so far have been willing to say things are moot because it seems like they just don't want to deal with it. Um, and I'm I'm really hoping that doesn't happen here. Joanna? Rights violations by Kafkaesque bureaucracy. It's kind of the perfect case for 2023. And uh, we will be watching and hopefully recording with you next week, bright and early in the morning, which I yeah. love to do. <laughs> Shall we move on to bad legal takes? Absolutely. So my bad legal take this week goes to Dr. Christopher Wells, who is only a doctor in the sense that Dr. Jill Biden is a doctor. He's actually <laughs> a professor of, I looked this up, a professor of child and youth care, whatever that means, at uh, McEwen University in Edmonton. And he's also a Canada research chair for the, quote, public understanding of sexual and gender minority youth, which means he gets a hefty chunk of taxpayer research money that could be going to curing cancer, but alas, this is Canada. So the federal research money mostly goes to woke causes like that. Um, and I'm not sure how this guy gets any research done because he spends all of his day tweeting about how everything is homophobic or, or transphobic and his tweets last week during the Million March for Children were especially unhinged, as you can probably imagine. First, he tweeted, It is very concerning that at Edmonton police would allow unauthorized hate parade to take over our city streets. Where were the permits? Why were the traffic laws not enforced? When pride parades are held, permits are needed and the community pays to close the streets. The Edmonton police obviously didn't respond to this, so he tweeted at them again. Edmonton Police Commission is meeting today. I hope public and media will ask why a hate parade was allowed to take over our streets without permits or paying costs for policing and traffic control. How is that equitable to every legitimate festival in the city? When people tweet things like this, I have to wonder whether high schools are teaching anything about constitutional rights, because if they were, people would be able to recognize that protests don't require permits. It's true that municipalities do sometimes ask people to get permits for parades like the Pride Parade or the Calgary Stampede or the Santa Claus Parade. And they do sometimes try to ask protesters to get permits. Um, but the whole point of protesting is to take over some public space, be a little bit disruptive and try to get your message across. So I'm pretty confident in saying that if you want to organize a rally in a public space like a park or the streets or outside of a legislature, you don't need to get a permit. You have every right to use the streets and the sidewalks to march, even if it's a little bit annoying or disruptive. Where I think people do tend to cross the line from what's constitutionally protected as a protest to something that's illegal is, well, obviously if there's violence, but also if uh, people do things like blockade. So if you glue yourself to the road, um, which we've seen climate protesters do a lot in Europe recently, or if you set up an encampment in a public park and you stay for weeks on end, like we saw with the Occupy movement, that is probably not constitutionally protected. And I tried to find out if there were cases where people had to challenge tickets for, you know, violating bylaws um, by protesting without a permit and it looks like that doesn't come up very often. So I guess police understand that there's a right to protest and they can't ticket people for, for that. They're, the only cases that really come up that I, at least with this initial search that I did, were, were related to two encampments and occupations. So, for example, in Saskatchewan, there was an Indigenous rights group that was asked to or required to vacate a park outside of the legislature because they 
occupied it for months without a permit. And the same thing happened with Occupy Toronto and Occupy Ottawa back after the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, like I said, where's Dr. Wells tweets about those (laughs) lack of permits? (laughs) That's a good point. Um, Yeah, because there's probably lots of occupations like that happening. It seems like he just cares about the topic of the protest and not about the permits. Are you saying he's not principled? Come on, come on. So yeah, bottom line, like don't blockade, don't occupy. That's not, that's not going to be necessarily constitutionally protected, or at least um, governments are able to, to, to ask you to move along. But I really don't think you need a a permit to hold a protest or a march. It kind of defeats the, the point. So Joanna, let's hear your, your bad legal take. Yeah, so mine is about Russell Brand, which has become sort of a perfect storm in the culture war. And I won't really get into it. I'm actually going to write about it for the hub this week. So Russell Brand is, of course, this British guy who uh, is a comedian, podcaster, YouTube sensation. He's talked about like, you know, being a lout and being extremely promiscuous. Um, Times of London last week published a 7,000 word piece detailing allegations against him, including um, that he uh, sexually assaulted a 16 year old girl when he was 30. Um, This represents four years of reporting. The allegations seem credible. Uh, Russell Brand seems like a creepy guy. I have no problem um, believing that he did these things. Um, Criminal charges are being pursued. Uh, In the meantime, though, he's been dropped by sponsors, he's been demonetized on YouTube. All of that is fair game, right? Like if you're a business and you decide this guy looks dodgy, we want to get out of business with him. That is totally fair game. Um, But where it crosses the line is where the government steps in and seemingly exerts pressure on private businesses to also drop him, which is what happened in the UK last week. So, uh, a lady named Dame Caroline Dinnage, who is of the UK Parliamentary Committee on Culture, Media and Sport, sent a letter to Rumble, which is actually a Toronto-based, although now Florida uh, headquartered business, um, expressing her concerns about the platform continuing to host brand and his content. Um, Rumble is, of course, a platform that markets itself as being sort of uh, free speech fundamentalists. Uh, And so in her letter, Dame Dinnage wrote with her concerns that Russell Brand, quote unquote, may be able to profit from his content on the Rumble platform and asking if Rumble would, quote, confirm whether Russell Brand is able to monetize his content. Then she asked uh, what Rumble is doing to ensure that creators are not able to use the platform to undermine the welfare of victims of inappropriate and potentially (laughs) emphasis on potentially illegal behavior. Like what (laughs) inappropriate and potentially illegal. I mean, there are many things that are potentially illegal. Anything, everybody does something on a given day that is potentially illegal that could later be made illegal. Like this is just such a loose lack standard for an agent of the government, like there is some implicit coercion here that it doesn't specify what the UK Parliamentary Committee on Culture, Media and Sport is going to do if Rumble doesn't play ball, which they've given all indications, um, rightfully so, that they don't intend to do. Um, but like just like WTF, he's been charged. He's presumed innocent. Um, Rumble is not the government. Uh, Rumble has every right to continue hosting their content if they want to take the fallout from that. Presumably YouTube came to a different conclusion. And it's just a total, again, total blithe disregard for the presumption of innocence. Um, And for me, it's just a deja vu. And it's like, don't we have any societal antibodies to this? Like in Canada, we had the Gian Gameshi incident. Of course, in the U.S., there was all of the hysteria and fallout from the Harvey Weinstein incident. Like, haven't we learned by now um, to kind of uh, take take a breather? Um, apparently not. Um, so that's my rant. And you can read more about it in the Hub this week. Uh, Christine, what is your bad legal take? 
I just want to say, you know, like this podcast could be potentially illegal if we were recording it from a pool in Waterloo, because I'm sure someone will be offended by something <laughs> we said. So I, I jaywalked this morning. It's potentially illegal. Right? I hope we don't. I hope we don't get banned. Okay. So my bad legal take goes to CBC this week. You know, as we've talked about, there was this million kids protest and that reignited some interest in our case challenging the Calgary bylaw that bans protests on specified topics. Now, obviously, our interest in that bylaw is about the right to protest, the right to expression and assembly is about the protest ban. And and that that ban uh, applies to protests of all kinds of topics, not just about the topics that related to this million kids march, which was gender and trans issues. But you know, the fact that the bylaw bans all kinds of things kind of flew over the head of the CBC. They covered our legal challenge with Calgary bylaw aimed at protecting a LGBTQ events faces legal challenge. I think a more accurate headline would be legal charity targets Calgary law that violates freedom of assembly. Bylaw prohibits wide variety of protests. Now, CBC's headline was obviously a deliberate choice. They're suggesting that we are somehow anti-safety for LGBTQ people, which could not be further from the truth. Uh, The bylaw is about so much more than this one issue. It is about the core democratic and constitutionally protected right to protest and expression. And that's expression and protest on any topic, not just the one topic that CBC focused on. And they also quoted a professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, who studies constitutional law. And they included from him the absolute most generic quote you could possibly imagine. He said, uh, on the arguments regarding free expression, the CCF has the evidentiary evidentiary burden to prove that the bylaw violates or infringes freedom of expression. Yes, this isn't even an opinion. (laughs) It is just a statement of the law. It is the evidentiary threshold and burden. I don't even know why that is worth including in the article. Uh, Of course, we must show that the right has been violated. But you know what, what would be more interesting to have included is the fact that that threshold is extremely low. That would have been more informative. Almost everything can constitute expression. So Yes, this is very likely to be a violation of the right to freedom of expression. Um, that that would be more informative. Look, the inclusion of this this quote, and this is not any shade at the prof who said it, because we don't know what the full quote is. They might have just pulled this completely banal part of it from what he said. It just adds nothing to the article, but it sort of seems to somehow suggest that we have an uphill fight when the the case is extremely clear cut. So look, I, I mean, I'm I'm being harsh on CBC. I don't actually know. I don't expect a whole lot from from them when it comes to reporting on our cases, but I maybe did expect better than this. Uh, that is it for my legal take. Okay, so um, I think that's it for us this week. So as usual, we hope you will rate us, review us, and subscribe. And just a reminder that you can support our work. Uh, by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, and signing up for that newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. If you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas, at jdehaas at theccf.ca, Joanna Barron at jbarron at theccf.ca, or Christine at cvanguyne at the ccf.ca. Thanks for listening.